This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we're talking about the infamous bark beetle and how these native species have spiraled out of control in western forests, resulting in the deaths of millions of acres of trees. It's a good show. Stay with us. I think that one of the greatest things about being a scientist is that you can ask questions and get answers. And for me, I'm excited not to know the answers of things and to be able to pursue that. It's like in a candy store trying to decide what candy tastes best and what is it going to taste like. And I just find it really great to think about life and the planet and be able to come up with answers to questions that we have about whether it's on Earth or the universe or just an insect in a tree. Today on Science Moab, we are talking to Dr. Richard Hofstetter about bark beetles that live in western forests. Dr. Hofstetter is a professor at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. There he studies bark beetles, which are native insects that attack and kill living trees. They are common ecological processes in pine forests, but for reasons related to land use change and climate, Bark beetle outbreaks are now responsible for the deaths of millions of acres of trees in the American and Canadian West. Here, Dr. Hofstetter talks about how bark beetles attack and kill trees, the reasons why these outbreaks have gotten so large, and some of the new research aimed at halting bark beetle attacks. We begin with Dr. Hofstetter explaining the historic role of bark beetles in forests. Bark beetles have been around a really long time, and they have co-evolved with their hosts, mostly conifers, whether it's pines or spruce or fir. And, you know, usually they play an important role of thinning forests in terms of thinning out weaker trees, trees that are in areas of high density, uh, poor sites. And so over time, these beetles tend to take out trees that are weak and unhealthy, and it promotes a healthier forest. And you know, when conditions are change, like if there's fire or some stressor like drought uh, that lasts for several years, we often see changes in the landscape where we see more beetles killing trees and, and taking them out. And that's simply the response that that resource, which is the tree, is now available to these beetles, and they're simply responding to that resource and their populations increase, and you see more tree mortality. You know, whether it's uh, a blowdown that causes from natural wind disturbance or it's uh, damage from a chainsaw or root disease, anything like that is going to cause a tree to be susceptible to bark beetles. Okay. And, and there's also areas where their stands are high density, and we call them dog hair thickets in terms of ponderosa stands. And oftentimes you see individuals within those thickets starting to die. And some, some of that is simply competition. But others are, it is a result of beetle activity, where beetles are choosing certain trees and starting to thin out that 
that dense stand. And so they are a natural part of ecosystems. Yeah, so bark beetles are a natural part of the system. Uh, they, because they tr uh, cause trees to die, they actually provide habitat to other organisms that use dead trees. So whether it's woodpeckers, squirrels, uh, other fungi, uh, other things that can use the tree once it's dead. And so, you know, bark beetles create individual snags or stands within stands. It, it actually promotes biodiversity and increases wildlife in the stand. That's really interesting because, you know, just from hearing from the outside, you hear about bark beetles as this really big problem, and enemy is a strong word, but, you know, you hear about them in a really negative light. So can you break down for me just kind of how we've gotten there and how they have moved from maybe this creator of biodiversity to maybe a problem species in some areas? Yeah. Bark beetles become a problem when the populations get high, and that can be caused from unnatural reasons or natural reasons. And when their populations are high, they kill a lot of trees, and that really goes against some of our objectives that we want. So we, we may have our, our interests in recreation and beautiful forests that are green and alive, and bark beetles are simply causing changes that we don't support. And in that case, they, they have a negative light. Uh, we are seeing huge abundances, uh, in some cases more than we've ever recorded. And as a result, we're seeing a large-scale mortality event. And that obviously has negative consequences to a forest, to our objectives, our recreational purposes, or even potential threats uh, to campsites and uh, that may, trees may fall on people or uh, fire may be worse soon after a fire. And so I think when they kill a lot of trees, it obviously has a negative effect on our view of them. And our, our love of that forest has now uh, been altered in, in a way that, well, the forest has been altered in a way that uh, affects us personally and emotionally. What is causing these record numbers of beetles in our forests? You know, the, the increase in beetle abundance is, is caused by multiple things. One is climate has been more favorable for them. And the what this does is when, when temperatures are warmer throughout the year, their bark beetle survival uh, is fairly high. Because uh, in cold winters, you often see, uh, in some cases, beetles dying directly from cold weather, or uh, they just have a more difficult time surviving over extended periods. So temperature is a cause for increased survival. Another cause is, is forest stands are older, maybe in some cases more dense. And so oftentimes beetles are select trees that are over 80 years old and they're just weaker and beetles do better in those trees and they're, they survive uh, getting into those trees and then they also have a higher reproduction. And that also causes greater numbers. And there's a feedback where more, greater survival, greater numbers, and they're going to kill more trees. And so it's a positive feedback where the population just keeps building and building. And when populations are high, they're able to come healthier trees and move into trees that normally wouldn't be killed. So what's actually happening when a beetle attacks a tree? So uh, each beetle species it, it is a little different in their 
biology and why they attack a tree. There are many species, thousands of them, that attack dead material, and we often don't think of them as any, and in any negative way. But there are uh, a subset of beetles that attack living trees, and they must attack a living tree for their offspring to successfully develop in the tree. Okay, so they're laying their eggs in the yeah, tree. Yeah, if they were to go into a dead tree, they wouldn't have any reproduction, and they wouldn't, the offspring wouldn't survive. And so they have a, a, a very interesting niche where they attack living trees, uh, and the tree must die during that process for them to develop successfully. So their offspring will eat the phloem within the tree. If the tree stays healthy and vigorous, the offspring are unsuccessful in the sense that they would die in the resin of the tree. But when the tree gets attacked, and if enough beetles attack the tree, the tree no longer can produce resin, and their larv they lay eggs, those larvae hatch, the eggs hatch in the larvae and feed on the phloem. Uh, and the tree is dying throughout that process. What is the tree doing? It must know it's being attacked to some degree. So not no, but you know, mm -hmm. responding to the attack. And so what is the tree doing to fight the beetles? Yeah, so when a beetle attacks a tree, an individual beetle, it'll tunnel into the bark and the tree will respond by producing resin. There's already resin in the tree and it will try to push out. But the tree will also have what's called an induced response and it's local, localized on that area. So it'll increase the resin production to try to push that beetle out. And we call that a pitch out or causing a pitch tube, which is this resin mass that you see right at the entry point of where the beetle attacked. So the, the tree is responding by pushing, trying to produce resin and push the beetle back out of the tree. But the tree can also create a, a necrosis or a lesion around the attack point, And it actually kills its cells around it. And that can prevent the beetle from tunneling or uh, its larvae developing or even fungus from growing. And so it's actually killing a little bit of itself to protect the rest of the tree. The biggest. And how often is the tree successful in withstanding a bark beetle attack? When populations are low, when beetle populations are low, uh, most trees are successful at defending themselves. So 50 beetles attacking a tree will not successfully kill the tree, and the tree will successfully defend itself against 50 beetles or so. Okay. Yeah. So it's like you were saying, it's just when the populations are so high, the tree is overwhelmed. Yep. Eventually, when the more beetles attack the tree, they, the tree no longer has resin to pitch out, pitch out those beetles, and the beetles can simply get in there and lay eggs and reproduce. So usually the first beetles that attack a tree die, but those that come later succeed and are able to reproduce. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm weakens the tree over time. I've heard a lot about the bark beetle outbreaks in the northern Rockies, but I maybe maybe it's just me, but maybe I haven't heard a lot about them in the southwest. And so is, is it relatively common to see these big outbreaks in the southwest? Yeah, uh, areas like Colorado, uh, California are experiencing large outbreaks of bark beetles, and they are currently in, in those now. And, especially California right now with drought. They've had drought for several years and they're seeing about over 90 million dead trees. Wow. Not all of them are killed by bark beetles, but 
there's bark beetle populations are definitely increasing as a result of weakened trees. Uh, in Arizona and New Mexico, we, we do see localized outbreaks, but they're pretty infrequent, and they usually only occur after uh, several years of drought. So as climate changes, do we anticipate more outbreaks in this region? Or do we not know? Yeah, yeah that's a good, good question whether climate warming will, will result in more outbreaks. Uh, I think if there are extended drought years, like we had in 2003-2004, uh, we will see more bark beetle outbreaks in Arizona and New Mexico. And then after an outbreak occurs, like those trees in California, that huge number of trees, are the forests then more susceptible to fire? Bark beetle killed trees, the, the risk of fire is high right after the trees die. Okay. But after a year or two, they drop their needles and actually probability of fire actually declines, at least the canopy fire. So, you know, with increased dead trees and after several years, actually the fires threat and severity actually will decrease. Oh, interesting. So there's a narrow window of time after bark beetle activity that there is potential for a canopy fire, but actually that is reduced after time. And so if no fire happens within that narrow window, then then the impacts are negative. Oh, I wouldn't have thought that, but yeah, yeah. it makes sense. And then you, I was reading that you've been working on um, something that's called acoustic exciters. Can you tell me what that entails, what that's about? Yeah. yeah, so we're working at ways to disrupt the ability of bark beetles to communicate. So one of the ways they communicate is with pheromones, and they use pheromones, which is a chemical, to attract more beetles to individual trees. And that helps them successfully colonize a tree. Uh, and one of the other ways they communicate is through sound, and they stridulate or they rub body parts together. And so when they get into the tree, they need to determine who's already in there, who's in the tunnel, and is it a female or is it a male? And the only way they can do that is by creating these sounds, and they produce certain sounds. So each gender creates certain sounds, and each species are unique. And so they use these sounds to determine if someone is already in there, if there's a male in the tunnel or a female in the tunnel. And so we're able to uh, introduce sounds into trees to disrupt that ability to communicate. And what we find is that you can trick them to believing that there's an uh, intruder in the tunnel and they will start to chew each other and result in mortality. So oh, when you play the sound into the tree, we start to see beetles chewing each other and, uh, we, and you see a high, high level of mortality and you also see reduction in and egg laying and, and reproduction. So let me just make sure I got this right. So you're playing <coughs> sounds to make the beetle think that there is another beetle that it wants to attack in the tunnels. Correct. Wow. Yeah, there's cool. two roles we're trying to do with the sound. One is tree protection. We're trying to prevent the beetle from going into the tree. And so we're trying to create sounds that would cause them not to go in to a tree. So we're trying to protect the tree. The other role of the sound is once they're in the tree, can we reduce their ability to reproduce and develop and survive. We're lucky enough to have a sample of the sounds that Dr. Hofstetter uses to defend trees from bark beetles. 
These acoustic exciters are meant to deter bark beetles from attacking trees. Take a listen. We're also looking at how these sounds affect fungal growth. So bark beetles introduce fungi that they feed on, and the fungi can sometimes influence tree defenses. They can also be a food source for developing uh, bark beetles, and they can also, they're also pathogens of bark beetles that are fungi that are in these trees as well. So if we're playing sound into these trees, are we also affecting the fungal growth in some way? And so we're finding that some of these sounds actually increase or decrease fungal growth within tree wood. How is that possible? There are several reasons why it could affect the sound. One is it could be influencing gene expression. So we could be triggering genes to turn on and off to produce proteins that would cause increased growth. Or they could be the vibrations of the sound could be causing intracellular compounds to mix and increase efficiency, so they may grow faster. Or the sounds could disrupt the cell wall, which could decrease or cause ruptures and, and cause it to grow slower. We actually don't know how the sound is affecting. We just are finding out that it is. So interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what you want to do is make sure that the sounds that you are playing is not disrupting the, the fungi that you want to encourage. Yeah, to what, what we found is that when we play the sound of bark beetle stridulation, we actually found one of the pathogens increases its growth. The so, bark beetle pathogen. Yeah, so the sound may, the, the, the fungus may use the sound as a cue to increase growth in the presence of a bark beetle to find it like a predator would find its prey. The other thing, if we can use sound to cause the beetle fungi to stop growing, the beetles wouldn't succeed. So it's another tool that we could use sound for. If we can stop the mutualistic fungi from growing, then beetles would, would not survive. The, mute, the fungi that they feed on. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. You, you've talked already a little about fungi, but you, you mean you study communities. And mm -hmm. so you have also, in some of your work, it involves in mites and bark mm -hmm. beetles. And I was wondering if you could tell me how those two are connected. When a beetle attacks a tree, it brings not only fungi and bacteria, but it also has other animals on it. And it's like a bus coming to a bus stop where people drop off when they arrive at a certain location. And so when the beetle arrives at a tree, mites and nematodes jump off where uh, into the tree oh, and reproduce and, and do a lot of other things. And these mites are predators of bark beetle eggs or larvae. They also are predators of nematodes, but they also eat fungi and bacteria uh, and do a lot of other things in the tree. So when a, the offspring of the beetles leave the tree, those mites jump on their offspring and go to the next tree. So when, you know, when the bark beetle attacks a tree and the tree dies, not only are bark beetles succeeding, but all of these fungi and bacteria and nematodes and mites, there's probably hundreds of species that oh, wow. exist only because of bark beetles. 
like the bark beetle, they only exist in that narrow niche of habitat. Mm -hmm. So if they don't get on the bark beetle when it leaves, they, it's a dead end and they die. And so they need to get back on the bark beetle, get back on the bus, and get to the new tree. Oh. <laughs> Complicated communities. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're studying these mites to see how they influence the fungal community, okay. and also whether they can be used as biocontrol of bark beetles, uh, and other just basic science questions of how they influence the community and uh, may change genetic diversity of fungi or the way a tree defends itself against these fungi. And so we're just trying to understand their role in this larger community uh, that's out there. How common is it in nature to see the cyclical pulses of a species? In many cases, don't know, but in some, some cases we find that you know, it just happens to be natural enemy complexes that do it, or, or climate, or a combination of the two. And, you know, I should say bark beetles naturally outbreak, and it's because of this positive feedback, where the more success they have, the more the population builds, and that causes the outbreak to happen. And it's just a natural process of attacking healthy living trees. If they attack dead material, which is always available, their populations would be more steady. But because they're attacking healthy trees and they, once they reach a certain population density, it, it's going to grow. It's, instead of go negative, it's going to go positive, and that causes an outbreak. And we've been seeing bark outbreaks on it forever in North America. And you can see it in dendro records. You can okay. see it from uh, even when you know, Europeans colonized you know, eastern U.S., they saw bark beetle outbreaks in their forests. So it has nothing to do, it's not human-caused. This is a natural part of their process. I was wondering what first got you interested in working with insects and, and communities in general. So when I was an undergraduate, my interest was to study birds. I thought I'd be an ornithologist. I was always interested in, in raptors and birds in general. And I ended up working in an entomology lab uh, where I did a variety of tasks working with other graduate students or, or graduate students at the time and, and postdocs and and the lab worked on bark beetles and so I got to learn a lot about bark beetles and uh, a lot of other interesting ecological questions and I found out that you can ask the same questions that you would ask to study birds or mammals that you could ask with insects but you could get the answer is faster and easier. So you don't have to work with uh, regulations when you're working with insects very often. And uh, the generation times of insects are so quick that you can do a study with in a month or two that would take 10 to 20 years studying jaguars or quetzals or something like that. And so I, uh, you know, it just got me really excited to, 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 to study insects and, and to ask very interesting questions and to be able to get an answer fairly quickly. And as I started to study insects, I found that they have these complex interactions with many other species like mites and fungi that really fascinated me and I wanted to learn more about why certain species are mutualists and why others are antagonists and how do they coexist and how do they influence each other's populations. Uh, and I found that you could do that really well with insects. 
What do you enjoy about being a scientist? I think that one of the greatest things about being a scientist is that uh, you can ask questions and get answers. And for me, I'm excited not to know the answers of things, or not to know the answer to a question, and, and to be able to pursue that. And so for me, I've, it's like a, in a candy store, trying to decide what candy tastes best, and what is it going to taste like. And, and uh, I just find it uh, really great to, to think about life and the planet, and be able to come up with... Uh, answers to questions that we have about it, whether it's on Earth or the universe or just an insect in a tree. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.